So that is in the New Testament, so towards the back of the Bible. For those of you that aren't familiar with your Bibles, that's okay. You can actually use one of those pew Bibles that you find if you don't have a Bible this morning, and you're going to need it this morning. We'll, we'll just kind of stick super close to the text for most of our time together. And so I'll be referencing this, and I want you to see it yourselves as well in Scripture. So Philippians chapter 2. All right. We'll look at the first 13 verses. Paul writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer for us is as we simply think about what Christ you have done for us, that we would be in awe of that, that we would be moved by that, that we would be stunned by your tremendous love and your grace for us. And the outworking of that, was that is that we would not just look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. So we are in a uh, short sermon series where we have taken a break from the, our exposition in the book of John. And so that's normally what we do is we work our way through a book of the Bible. And we are like um, a little over halfway through the book of John. And we'll pick back up in John um, probably in the very early parts of 2019. And um, it, it will take us a, a, another big chunk of 2019 to get through that. But in the meantime, what we're looking at is we're looking at what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That that's what Jesus has called us to be and to do is to be not just like Christians, like what are we? Well, we're Christians, uh, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, we are Christians, but even defining Christians a little further, we could say this, that we are disciples, that we are disciples of Jesus. And so then it's like, well, what does disciple mean? 
And so we've been defining that week in and week out for like the last seven weeks as to what does it mean to be a disciple? And these like banners, these uh, identities, if you will, that, that we kind of assume as a church, they help us to define what it means as a disciple. We are learners and we are family, as Pastor Brian preached last week. We are servants. Today, we're going to look at that. And we are also, as we will look at, we are missionaries. Now, again, I want to stay centered around the text because I really think that it's, it's important for us to stay focused on this text because I really think it's going to address some things that are happening even within our church or some things that could happen. But in this text, the issue at hand is the issue of unity that Paul is writing and he's addressing the church in Philippi. And he's trying, what he's trying to do is he's trying to un, uh, unruffle some feathers. But evidently some feathers have become ruffled in the church. And we see this in chapter four, verse number two, that there's a, a group of ladies and something's happened within these ladies that somehow they've become like, like disunified, and now it's uh, affecting the church, that your relationships affect the church. Maybe you didn't realize that or not, but your disunity that you may feel and bring towards individuals in the church can have an effect on the church as a whole. And so that's what's happening here. And so in this letter, the letter of Philippi, like some other letters that Paul writes, he wants to address the issue of unity, that unity within the church is very important that disunity and discord and division in the church, that first of all, we can say it grieves Jesus deeply. Then when Christ's church is disunified, it grieves Jesus deeply. And we'll see that whenever we get back into the book of John, we'll see that in John 17, the reason why. I mean, Jesus praying moments before his death, he's praying for his church and he's praying that his church would be unified. And we, as a local expression of Jesus' church, we want to be unified. Disunity, it robs the church of its power and of its witness. But let's say even this, or let me say this, that it's one thing to say that we have unity, and it is a completely different thing for us to actually be relationally unified. It's easy for us to say, oh, we have unity and, and claim unity as a church, but it's something completely different for us to actually tangibly be relationally united. That as we've been talking about, we've been saying, hey, a couple weeks ago, we are learners, but each one builds off of another. And they all, I think, as a foundation, build off this concept of learners, that we, you and I, we as learners, we are actively learning. It's not just that, hey, we have learned, and hopefully we have learned some truth, but we're actively, right now, we are learning. What are we learning? Well, we're learning to how to love Jesus. We're learning how to love our, how to love our neighbors. We're learning how to live out all of the declarations and the implications, the imperatives, the indicatives of the gospel. All that the gospel declares for us, we're learning how to live that out as human beings here in the, in the year 2018, as citizens of Frankfurt and of Kentucky and all of that, how to be moms and dads. And what does that look like under the banner of the declarations and the implications and the imperatives of the gospel, and we're living that out. And what does that look like for us as a church? Well, one of the things that it looks like is that we are family, as we discussed last week, that we are family. And what unites this family is not common interest. It's not common political views. It's not common practices. It's not common preferences. It's not common ideas. It's not common backgrounds. But what unites this family 
is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what unites this family. That we say that blood is thicker than water. We say that about our own like biological families. And although that may be scientifically true, it may be biologically true, it may be true, but it's not genuinely always true about a family. But what unites this family is thicker than water. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood that Christ has shed. It is a common faith in the gospel. It is the finished, it's our collective and also individual belief in the finished work of Jesus. But listen, real unity should never be assumed or presumed in the church. It's not just something that we should declare, but real unity should be a reality that is relationally felt. That unity is to be a tangible experience in our church. It's to be a real love that manifests itself, not just in unity, but in an attitude of service. That's what Paul is getting at here, that if you are united together, if there is unity in the church, and I'm praying that you get this worked out and that you come back together in some sense of unity, a real tangible experience of being united. And here's how it will work out. It will be a real love for real people, for one another. And that love will be manifested. It's not just something to say that I, I love you, right? My grandfather used to say that. He's like, you know, my gra- your grandmother gets on me. It was, a, it was a joke. It wasn't true. They said, I love you all the time. But he said, you know, my gra- your, your grandmother gets on me all the time because I don't tell her I, I love her. And I say, Caddy, I, I said there on the, uh, you know, um, I said there at the altar when we said our vows on our marriage, I said that I loved you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. But like that don't go, that don't fly very well with our spouses, does it not? Like we need to hear it. And that's the same thing. And not just hear it. We need to feel it. We need to know it by the way that we love each other, by the way that we, how? By the way that we serve each other. The same thing is true for the church. Just one thing to say, hey, we've got a very loving congregation. And I would say that about us. I would say, hey, we're united and we have a loving congregation. Then how is our unity and how is our love? How is it being manifested? Well, here's how it's being manifested. It's being manifested in a desire to be together and the joy that happens in being together. And it's being manifested in the way that we serve one another. I mean, that's, what, that's Jesus right there. That's the call of the gospel. Jesus says, hey, I know that in the Old Testament, you got 600 plus commands, but I'm just going to give you two. I mean, surely you, can keep, surely you can keep two commands, right? Here they are. Love God and love your neighbors as yourself. That's it. All of the other laws hinge upon those. And so what does it look like for us to love God and to love others? And it looks like for us, loving others looks like a real, genuine attitude of humility and an actual service to each other. It looks like we serve. That when we say here that we are servants, as we even see in this text, it is the attitude, it's the mindset, it's the relational culture and the action of the church of Jesus Christ. Now let's get into the text. I said, I want to stay close to this text, so let's stay close to the text. What Paul does in this text, in the very first part of the text, is Paul comes through and he's going to ask, basically what he's doing here is he's asking four rhetorical questions. He starts off in verses, I think, one and two with four rhetorical questions. They're actually, I think, conditional clauses. If this is true, then this. But we can look at them. No damage is done by calling them rhetorical questions. Here they are. Question number one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
pause. Rhetorical question. Have you been encouraged by the knowledge that you are in Christ? Like, you once were in sin, but now you who believe in Christ have been taken out of sin and you've been placed in Christ. What that means is when the Father sees you, he doesn't no longer see you in sin, but he now sees you safe inside of Jesus Christ. All of Jesus's moral perfection has been counted to you. All of Jesus's righteousness has been accredited and accounted to you. You are securely placed inside of Christ. That means tomorrow when you get up and you realize that you have failed and you have floundered and you have sinned against the Lord, it doesn't change God's affection for you. It doesn't change your actual union with God. You are still secure in God. The question Paul asks is, is that, does that encourage you? You betcha. Like that's where you like, you know, there's this, there's a, there's a motion when you agree with somebody that you make, it's called nodding your head. You go, so we'll try that again. Cause we got four of these and your first one, you get a big fat F. So let's try it again. Is there encouragement for you in that knowledge? Absolutely. What other means do you have to absolve yourself of your sin? What other means are you going to take off your guilty fears, but the perfect blood of Christ, knowing that you're in Christ, do more good works? Like, go and try that. That doesn't work for us because here's the deal. We're fallen and we'll make good works about us, not about him. You'll be, start doing the good works and you'll be mad because you're not getting credit for the good works that you're doing. I mean, it's even happened here with service. Go serve, go serve, go serve. And you'll go serve and they'll be like, wait a minute, nobody saw my service. Nobody's uh, patting me on the back for my service. What's happening? No, because we are sinful. That's why we need to be placed in, the, in Christ. Is there encouragement in being in Christ? Yes, there is encouragement in that. That's encouraging news. Second, is there any encouragement? I mean, is there any comfort from love? Is there any comfort to your soul knowing that the God of this universe loves you with a real, tangible, perfect kind of love? Does that bring comfort to you? And whenever you face adversity and suffering and bad things happen to you, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because this is a sinful and fallen world. And his love is the constant. His love is the, is the, is the truth, the resounding truth that Jesus sees you as you are, and yet Jesus is painstakingly committed to you. He's painstakingly, I say that, because he went to the cross to prove and to show and to declare his love to you, that Jesus is radically committed to you. Oh my gosh. It's a covenantal type of love that he has, that Jesus is faithful to you that Jesus will never walk out on you. Jesus will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never sin against you. Paul is saying here, does that bring comfort to your soul? It's your part. Yeah, absolutely. Paul says, is there any participation in the spirit? Do you feel the spirit at work in you? The, the spirit is the seal and the guarantor of our eternal inheritance. He is the source of spiritual power, the source of spiritual gifts, the source of spiritual fruit in our lives. Do you feel his fellowship? Do you feel his, particip his participation, his cooperation, him birthing new desires in you? Do you feel that? Yes. Paul, is there any affection? Is there any sympathy? Christ has been affectionate and compassionate 
and sympathetic to you. Christ understands your weakness. Get it together, man, is never in the text. Jesus never utters the words, hey, just get it together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, the opposite. Jesus, as we even see in this text, becomes weak to understand our weakness. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who understands that Jesus' heart towards us, it's tender and it's compassionate. It's an affectionate drawing us to that. Paul's saying, do you feel that? Do you sense that? And we here would say as well, yes, yes, we do. Then verse number two, since this is the case, since this is your spiritual reality, complete my joy. That's just Paul making it personal in there. He just said, hey, make me happy by doing this. I understand that as a pastor. Complete my joy by being the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So what Paul is saying here is complete my joy. If this is true, these four things, if you sense the, uh, if you sense Christ's encouragement, if you sense Christ's comfort, if you sense the work of the Spirit, if you know that Jesus is affectionate and sympathetic to you, now here's how I want you to respond to that. Be of one mind. Be the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. So what he's saying there is have the same mind. It's the mind of Christ. Have the same love. It's the love of Christ. Be in full accord. That's harmony of mind. Have a single focus, the glory of Christ in serving others. And the question becomes then how? How does a diverse people like us, I mean, fairly diverse, how does a diverse people adopted into the same family, how do we stay united? How do we do this? How do we accomplish this same mind, this same love, this being in full accord, this, this one-mindedness, single-focusedness? How do we do it? What is the, and what, is the, uh, what, what does it feel like? What's the manifestations of that? Well, look, it's in the text. We don't have to make it up. It starts in verse number three. How do we do it? What's going to be the outworking of it? Well, here, here, here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But do this in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, that's important here. Like what he's saying is you don't grow more humble by focusing on yourself. You don't grow more humble by even focusing on others. The, the, the recipe in, the, in what he's saying here, the way that we, we are, our selfish dispositions are broken is as we focus on Jesus. I think it's Robert um, Murray McShane who said, for every one look at self that you take, take 10 looks to Christ. Gosh, man, that's good. We need to be reminded of that. that We don't grow in humility by just looking at ourselves. But as we think about Jesus, as we stand, as I said earlier, as we stand in awe of Christ and in of the gospel, as we deeply drink deeply in from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, the outworking of drinking that in is it breaks our selfish disposition. Verses number, what he says here, three and also in verse number four. That's why he says here, have this mind in verse number five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We'll get there. And what follows is a description of the mindset, the attitude of Christ. Verse number six, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
taking by taking on by taking the form of a servant being born in likeness of men and being found in human form Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross then let me give for you just um, I think three statements surrounding this that will help us to tease this out and apply it to our lives right now about being a servant the first one is this that being a servant is both an attitude and an action so Paul's saying here that being a servant is two parts to it it is both an attitude and it is also an action it is an attitude have this mind have this attitude have this lens have this outlook have this mind among yourselves. That's what he said in verse five. Take up this kind of outlook on life is what he's saying. As a believer in Christ, here's the way that I want you to think about your lives. I want you to think about yourselves in light of this. I want you to understand what all of this means. And it means this, that you are to be a servant. We're to understand the demand. We're to understand that we, not just understanding our rights, but for us to understand that we've been called by Christ into servant-mindedness. And it's a very way that we need to think about our lives. It's the way that we need to see ourselves and the world around us. It's an attitude. It's an attitude, but it's an attitude that avails itself in action. It's not just enough to be filled with this attitude and say, man, I'm a super humble person and I like to serve other people, but you need to follow through with action. And we see that even as we think about Jesus, it was not sufficient for Jesus to stay into heaven and just to think about how he wanted to serve us. It wasn't sufficient for Christ just to think about in heaven, even as the sovereign one to think about like, hey, I wanna win them to myself. I want to forgive them of my sins and I want to do it in a just way. And how can I do it? It wasn't enough for God to remain in heaven to think about those things, but Jesus had to actually put on flesh and come and to serve us. He had to actually enter into our world, into our lives, into this sphere, and he had to serve us. That Jesus understands our weakness because he has been made weak. Jesus understands our struggles because he has subjected himself to the human flesh and to the cross. That Jesus chooses, not just an attitude, but he, he makes a conscientious, if you will, choice in order to choose lowliness. And how far, how low did Jesus go? That's really what the question is Paul's asking here. How low, I want you to think about how low Christ went how far Jesus went in order to serve us. Well, how far did he go? He went all the way to Golgotha. He goes all the way to a bloody cross. It wasn't enough for him just to take on human flesh. It wasn't enough for him just to be born into a peasant family. It wasn't enough for him just to be born in a cave among uh, barn animals. It wasn't enough for him just to be a boy. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. How far was enough? The cross. His service to us takes him all the way to the cross for the Father's glory, for our good. And now let's bring this attitude and action together here. The writer of Hebrews, he describes Jesus's attitude and action in the cross in this way. 
his encouragement in Hebrews, the 12th chapter of the second verse, his encouragement to us is that we are to look to Christ. And he says that Christ is the founder. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then he says this about Jesus, who for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he, Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame. And what he's saying there about Christ is there was, there was something very difficult in the cross, right? There was something very painful in front of Jesus in the cross, but Jesus saw beyond the cross, saw beyond the pain, saw beyond the difficulty to the thing that would bring joy. For the joy set before him. The cross was not joy. What was joy was what was on the other side of the cross and what the cross would bring, namely glory to the Father, and the benefit and the good of his redeemed people. It was a redemption for us that would glorify the Father. So Jesus, seeing the cross as painful, Jesus sees beyond that. He sees through that and sees the joy that it would bring. That's attitude and action coming together. And the truth is for us here in this room, that you and I, we got work to do. Because oftentimes serving people, serving others, taking on the role of a servant, it's painful for us. But many of us here in the room, it's painful for us not to consider our own interests, but the interests of others. I mean, that's more than just discomfortable, right? That's more than bringing a discomfort to us. That's more than being uncomfortable. That for some of us, it, there's pain involved there. Like for some of you, it may mean that you got to write a check to somebody else in order to meet a need as a servant. And for some of you, parting from your money is a painstaking endeavor. Parting from your money is painful. That oftentimes it's painful to serve. It's painful to consider others. It's painful to set aside your interests, your agenda, your plans, and to have and to see beyond the pain. That's what you got to do in order to do how you can do it. You got to see beyond the pain and you got to see the joy that awaits on the other side, the glory and the joy. There's an age old question what do you do whenever it's it's an, the attitude's not there. I don't want to be a servant. I don't want to serve. I don't want to do it. And yet, like, do I just follow through with the action? What happens when the attitude and the action aren't together in my own heart? Like, what, what do I do? How do I, when do I serve? And how do I serve when I don't feel like serving? Anybody else feel that like that? So what do I do? Am I just to like, and people will say this, am I just to what, fake it until I make it? Like, I, you know, I don't really want to serve. So should I just fake it? Fake service and fake doing it with a good heart and a good intention until I make it. And I would say this, like, man, gosh, that sounds so hopeless. Just fake it till you make it. Sounds like there's no hope in the spirit to do a real work in your heart. It sounds so hypocritical for you to fake it until you make it. You know what's, the, what's not hypocritical? It's for you to be honest with your own self and with your heart and with the others and to be like, man, I'm a sinner and I'm selfish. Like that's, that's the feeling that I feel in my own heart is I feel a sense of selfishness and self-entitlement and I don't want to do that. Like that's, that's you, to pray that as a real prayer, God, I'm selfish. That's not hypocritical in that. But then to follow through, to do it, to go on and to, and to serve and to do that. Like that's not faking it until you're making it. That's, being, that's not being hypocritical. That's being very honest of, of just doing what you're supposed to do. I mean, the truth is, is what do you, our feelings are terrible indicators of right and wrong. Like surely most of you here have lived long enough to figure that out. Are they not? I mean, what a, 
miserable way to live by just feeling your way through life, right? Like, I, like some of you have lived it and I know that it's, it's possible is to feel your way into a ton of misery. Can you not? Can't you just feel your way by this feels what's right and you just do it and you've felt your way through a ton of misery? Like, no, that's not, that's not how we live. We don't live by our feelings alone and there's nothing hypocritical to answer that, that my feelings betray me all the time. My feelings don't indicate what's right and wrong. My feelings betray me because my flesh is involved. My flesh is broken. I heard uh, Pastor Herschel York, Pastor at Buck Run, I heard him say this one time. This is great. Rarely, rarely will you feel your way into correct actions, but you can act your way into correct feelings. I mean, that's true seen that in my own life. Rarely can you feel your way into correct actions. But I have. I've I've sensed that. I've acted my way into correct feelings. Numbers of times. I don't want to go to my community group tonight. I don't want to go serve this person. I don't want to help this person. I don't want to do this. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, you're going to do it. And then you go, there's a sense of joy. You go, man, I made the right decision. Gosh, glad I came. I'm glad I went. I hear that all the time and I experience that all the time. Our feelings are terrible indicators. If we wait on our feelings to align both in attitude and action, like we rarely will we ever serve. What Jesus is saying is let your, Jesus is, is exampled for us, is let your, let, your, let your actions be real. Servant-mindedness isn't just something we say, but it's something that we do. That's where I want to really go with that. Second, Being a servant is letting go of our entitlements and self-love and taking on humility and meekness. Talk about entitlement. Look at what Paul says in verse number six. Who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, that means he was God. That's what he's saying there. Though he was God, he was God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-eternal, always, All God, he was God. Jesus was God. Though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The key to understanding this text is rich theological text on the Trinity. But the key to understanding what Paul's really getting at is found in the word grasp. And what happens following grasp. After that comma and seven. But look, he, though he was, though he had a right, is what he's saying. Though he was entitled because he was God. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Doesn't mean he stopped being God, but what men say is he he came down, he chose lowliness. That you and I as human beings in comparison to God, the, 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 the chasm is unfathomable between God who he is as, as, as transcendent, that's the word, transcendent God and who we are as human. And yet Christ, God, as, as God comes and becomes that, he didn't cease being God, but he became what he never was, a human. He put on humanness by taking the form of a servant. I mean, look at how he, he used it. He became, his humanity was being a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. My former pastor, Jeff Eaton, when I was at Hope Church, he used to say, like, 
And I, don't, I mean, maybe you can find it in scripture. You, know, you say all the time, Jesus will never ask you to do something he wasn't willing to do first. Gosh, that's true here. Jesus just doesn't say, hey, I want you to show humility. I want you to humble yourself. I want you to conscientiously choose lowliness. I want you to assume the posture and the attitude of a servant. First, he modeled it for us. So we may be the benefactors of that. How far did he go? Again, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when you read the book of Isaiah, I hope we get to preach Isaiah sometime in the future. But Isaiah being written as a prophetic word that's going to happen some 700 years before Jesus' birth. And in the book of Isaiah, like as you read it, you never see the name Jesus. Jesus' name doesn't show up, but Jesus shows up all over the pages of Isaiah. And he shows up with these uh, prophetic titles for who Jesus will be. Prophetic titles like in Isaiah 9, he gives us three of them. He's going to be a mighty God, a prince of peace, a wonderful counselor. He's called the king of kings, the righteous one. But then in Isaiah 52 and 53, so let me read those to you again. He's a mighty God. He's the prince of peace. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the king of kings. He's the righteous one. But in Isaiah Isaiah 52 and 53, he takes on the title of the suffering servant. Isaiah says that he would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He will bear our grief. He will carry our sorrows. He will be stricken. He will be smitten by God and he will be afflicted. He who was entitled to so much does not hold on to that, but he lets go of it. He empties himself. He chooses loneliness and humility and meekness for our benefit and for the Father's glory. And what this text is saying here is now you and I as his adopted children, you and I who have been purchased, won, and bought by his blood, you and I who are the recipients of the Holy Spirit, now you and I with the same vigor, the same passion, take on this same mind and this same attitude. What does that look like? Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, in the original um, Greek, the word interests really isn't there that the word interest is assumed. Now, the editors haven't made a mistake in here, but really, like, they, they need to fill in the blank because our English language doesn't quite work like Greek. Like, sometimes there were, there's just things that are assumed in the Greek, and we need them spelled out for us. But here's one of those places that, that the word interest is, is like a filler put in. That it's, a, it's open-ended. It's a blank for you to fill in. All that is specified is um, you, you, you not holding on to your own something, but considering others something. Like that's kind of how it would work. And so it could be this. It could be that we could say it like this. Let each of you look not only to your own financial affairs or for your own property or for your own possessions or for your own family or for your own health or for your own reputation or for your own education or for your own success or for your own happiness. Don't just think about that. Don't just have desires about that. Don't just strategize about that. Don't just work toward that, but 
look to the financial affairs, the property, the possessions, the family, the health, the reputation, the education, the success, the happiness of others. Be just as concerned and interested in your neighbor as you are yourself. And that's where we enter in this idea of self-love. And I say this often, nowhere in the scripture are we told to love ourselves. Now, I'm, I'm setting that apart as an idea, uh, maybe a little bit of, apart from the idea of like what we would call self-esteem, but I don't even know about that. But this is the absolute truth. Maybe you don't like yourself, but you love yourself. Maybe you don't respect yourself, but believe me, you love yourself. That no one in this room, and even in my, my, my dead grandma was even in here. I could still say this and it would be true. No one in this room is more concerned about the health and the benefit and the welfare of Andy Lawrence than Andy Lawrence. Believe that. And what Paul is saying is because of the work of Christ, we should be less concerned with ourselves and equally concerned with others. Think about how that would change. Think about how that could, could possibly change our lives and change the relational feel if, if my desire was to see others welcomed into this family as much as I want to be welcomed into this family. Think about how that would change what we do with our time if I wanted others to be included as much as I'm included if I wanted others to be taken care of as well as I want myself to be taken care of. And that's the idea that Paul's getting at. And it's so counterintuitive. Gosh, it grates against our flesh, does it not? It grates against us. Like if I was concerned about others' agenda as much as I'm concerned about my agenda, if I made others a priority as much as I make me a priority, Oh, how that would change our world. Lastly, being a servant is both our work and his work. It's both our work and it's his work. It's our work, it's our effort that we're called to do. But it's also, it's, it's his work. We see this in the text. We see it first, have this mind in you that, was, that is yours in Christ. Have this mind, it's something you are doing, you that is yours, you have possession of it in Christ. Like that's the tension. We see it again in the text. I think in verse, uh, let's see, 12b, we're going to look at verse, actually we can just look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have, oh, have just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here it is, work out your own salvation. That's your effort. That's your work. I mean, what that means for us is servants work hard. Servants go the extra mile. That's what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. If someone asks you to go one mile, you go too. What Jesus is talking about is Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy and superiority of the Pharisees and saying, my people will be marked different. My people will be marked by humility and generosity. That's how they'll be marked. And in this, what's that look like? If someone says, hey, go with me one mile, you'll say, hey, whoa, whoa, I'll go with you two miles. If someone sues you, says, if someone sues you over your tunic, it's like, hey, take this jacket too. 
In fact, do, do take his jacket because I don't need it because it's 900 degrees in here, right? Take his jacket. Here you go. You can have it. That's the same thing that he's saying here. Servants work hard. Servants go the second mile. Servants assume more responsibility. Say that again. Servants assume more responsibility. And maybe I can contrast that with the attitude I feel in my own heart and sense in my children, I sense it in you as well. The more responsibility is to be contrasted, if you will, with the attitude of, oh, someone else will get that. I think oftentimes our lives are marked not by the attitude of servant to say like, how can I assume more responsibility? But oftentimes our attitude is marked by, oh, don't worry, somebody else will get that. And like, that's not one that, I, that you see in the mirror very often, but those of us in here who are parents, especially parents of teenagers, we see it in our teenagers often. Oh, I can leave this blanket out because guess what? Mom will come and get it. Oh, I can leave this dirty dish out because guess what? Mom will come and clean this up. I mean, they know better than to think dad, right? But we, we have that attitude. And what I tell my children and I tell my youth group as well is like, that's an issue of integrity. That's an issue of servant-mindedness whenever you say, hey, hey, I don't need to assume responsibility. Someone else will take care of that. Someone else will clean up after me. And that, I think that possibly could be a real issue for us as a church. That could be a real challenge to us. And here's why I know that. Is on Mondays when you walk through the sanctuary, this place is like a disaster. There's coffee mugs and cups and junk and candy crumbs and, I mean, donut crumbs and papers littered everywhere. And our attitude, I think, in that, and that's a cultural issue for us. Like it was that way before we got here, when we were over at the factory, it'd be just, I, I mean, I'd go in on Monday mornings and like, picking stuff up and be like, you gotta be joking me. I think that before I just say, hey, it's a culture issue. It's no good. But I think it's integrity issue for us. Because what we're saying in that when we leave a mess is we're saying, hey, you know what? Somebody else will get that. And if we do it here, we probably do it at restaurants. We probably do it in the movie theater. We probably do it in other places in our lives. And I really think it re could reveal a lack of servant-mindedness in us. You know what? Somebody else will pick up this trash. And I think what Jesus is saying is, don't just assume responsibility for your own trash. Assume, assume responsibility for others' trash. Like when you take your cart back in the Kroger parking lot, don't, if you're able, I would say this, if you're able, physically able, don't just take your cart back. Take somebody else's cart back. I mean, you do it at Aldi because you want the quarter, right? Gather up as many carts as we can get. We're getting rich today, kids. Those of you that ever shopped at Aldi, you know what I'm saying there, you know? We do it there. Why wouldn't we do it otherwise? It's just the little issues. The song of uh, Solomon writes as, as the one who knows all, who's infinitely wise, wisest man to ever live, Solomon. He says this in Song of Solomon. He says, it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. And I think that's so true in our lives. It's the little things, these little fractures that show up in our lives that really do point to bigger things in our lives. Like we all got big stuff, big fissures and fractures in our lives, but oftentimes it's, it's the little ones that feel very little and small that are actually the big ones. If we can close the gap up in those, some of the smaller ones will be closed up as well. And for some of us, this attitude of entitlement is a huge deal in us. It shows up over and over and over again. Like many of you grew up, you were never corrected, you were never disciplined, you were told you did anything wrong, you were encouraged and told how wonderful you are and all, and it just gave you this sense of self-entitlement. And what Jesus is saying is when you see my work on the cross, it crushes that sense of self-entitlement. 
where you no longer see the world revolving around you and your world and how dare someone move my pencil off on my desk. I'm gonna rip somebody's head off. How dare that person cross over a line? How dare that person cut in front of me in traffic? How dare this person drive so slow? How dare this person not take off as soon as the light turns green? And it uproots our joy. And ultimately what it shows us is a sense of self-entitlement that we have. We can, we, our path to the wherever it is we're growing should be as straight and as clear as possible. I deserve that. They come to Haiti with me sometimes, right? You'll praise God for four o'clock traffic here. You'll be like, praise God. This is awesome compared to the way they drive in Haiti. Amen, Amen right? Those of you Matt, Matt knows, that's right. And what's happened is, is, man, we take, we do it so often. We take all of the blessings that God has given us and it sometimes can just sour us and spoil us. We gotta be honest with ourselves and know, man, you're so selfish. But the good news of the gospel isn't just for you to get it together. It's not just your work, although you gotta put effort in. It's also Jesus's work. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. That as we look to your cross and as we look to you more than a, just an example, Jesus's humility is more than just an example. The gospel is good news, but the gospel also through our faith in it comes to us as a power. When we believe that good news, it's a power that upsets us deeply on the inside in a good way. That it comes to us as we believe in Jesus. Jesus makes us new. He transforms us. That's week one in this series. He transforms our hearts and transforms our minds and transforms our affection transforms our wills and transforms our purpose. That's the new good news of the gospel. Not just, hey, go be a, not just, hey, go be a servant, but Jesus in the form of his Holy Spirit, who is the perfect suffering servant, now fills your heart. May he do his transformational work in us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've saved us and you've saved us from ourselves and you've saved us for you. And my prayer is, Jesus, as we come and we remember your sacrifice, we remember your blood that was shed and your body that was broken, that it would uproot our sense of self-entitlement. That, Lord, it would fill us with a genuine affection for you and a love and a sense of gratitude. My prayer is, Lord, as we come and as we observe this time together, Lord, that we would be new and afresh. We would be stunned by your grace and by your love and by your service, your tangible service to us, that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. No amount of good work, no amount of sacrifice, no amount of any of those things would ever atone for our sins. And Jesus, you came and you did it. And in like fashion, Jesus, you call us to go and to serve. You're creating a new people, a new creation. And Lord, my prayer for you, for us as a church, that we would be a manifestation of that new creation. A new creation that's called to love you and to love others. My prayer for us is that our love for others would be real, be infectious. It would point to you. In your name we pray. Amen.